It's Wednesday, September 21st. I'm Pam Jones. A medical panel at the U.S. Department of Health is recommending that everyone under age 65 get screened for anxiety. Our health reporter talked with the director of the Mental Health Association of Maryland about how this pandemic has affected us all and what help there is for Marylanders. The sanitation issues of the city's homeless encampments got a public hearing today. Most Marylanders condone recreational marijuana use, according to a Goucher poll with WIPR and the Baltimore Banner. We'll have more results from the poll. Plus, tomorrow is the 29th annual Dining Out for Life. I'll have a conversation with their director about this year's goal for supporting Maryland's chronically ill and food insecure. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. A panel of medical officials at the Department of Health and Human Services is recommending that doctors screen everyone under the age of 65 for anxiety. Local medical officials say prioritizing mental health could benefit Marylanders who have been struggling for the past couple of years. Nearly 40 percent of Marylanders reported feeling anxiety or depression last year. Conducting screenings and providing care may be a challenge. Maryland also suffers from the national shortage of mental health care professionals. Sanitation issues at homeless encampments in Baltimore was the subject of a city council committee public hearing today. WIPR's Bethany Raja reports. Council member Felicia Porter said she wanted to discuss what the city can and is doing to keep the now 23 camps around town clean. It's time that we use our leverage of our additional funding from ARPA our agencies to really, really understand and provide actionable, tangible solutions to persons experiencing homelessness. But Bill Wells, deputy director of the mayor's Office of Homeless Services, said none of the $75 million in ARPA monies allotted to his agencies was earmarked to keep homeless encampments clean. They addressed things like permanent locations for emergency housing or shelter, increasing the supply of housing and navigation to housing, as well as increasing flexible funds. Wells said the city currently hands out trash bags to residents at homeless camps. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. A report by Baltimore City's Inspector General finds deplorable sanitation issues at a city-run health clinic have not improved nearly two years after its initial investigation. The Baltimore City Health Department's Druid Sexual Health Clinic still has a mummified rat in the basement near the staff break room, despite first being discovered in December of 2020. Other issues, such as malfunctioning air conditioning, damaged doors, and overflowing dumpsters have been addressed, according to the report. According to the Baltimore Brew, city officials blame the lingering issues on its janitorial contractor. A Johns Hopkins University report has found major disparities between the condition of Baltimore City public school buildings and those in other districts across the state. Researchers at the Bloomberg School of Public Health found that city school buildings have the most serious hazards and oldest components, such as windows, gym floors, and HVAC systems. According to the report, Baltimore students missed more than a million hours of school because of facility conditions over the last five years. Republican gubernatorial nominee Dan Cox is raising doubts about whether he will accept the results of November's election, which is now seven weeks away. WIPR's Rachel Bay with that story. 
Cox is tying his decision to accept the results to the outcome of a legal fight over when the state can start counting ballots. The State Board of Elections has asked the Montgomery County Circuit Court to suspend state law to allow elections workers to begin counting mail-in ballots October 1st. But Cox has said that would violate the state constitution, which he said Monday would reduce his confidence in the electoral process. And so when we see the electoral process upheld, when we see the law and the constitution upheld, that's where we get our confidence in. Cox was asked if he will accept the election results if the court says the state can begin counting ballots early. He declined to answer. A hearing on the ballot counting issue is planned for today. With reporting from Pamela Wood of the Baltimore Banner, I'm Rachel Bay, WYPR News. This November, Marylanders will vote on a referendum to legalize recreational marijuana. A new poll finds it's likely to pass. WYPR's health reporter Scott Massioni tells us more. Medical marijuana has been legal in Maryland since 2014. Now voters will decide if they want to become the 20th state to legalize recreational marijuana. A new poll conducted by Goucher College in collaboration with WYPR and the Baltimore Banner finds that 59% of respondents plan to vote yes on the referendum. If passed, the law would go into effect on July 1, 2023 and allow for the sale of pot to the general public and the possession of up to 1.5 ounces of weed. Private citizens will also be able to grow up to two marijuana plants on their property. Poll respondent Ian Mayo says he'll be voting for the measure. Just like alcohol and tobacco, I don't really see any issue with an an adult making a choice to do that, and it would bring more tax revenue in. A separate referendum on the ballot would expunge previous marijuana convictions. Scott Massioni, WYPR News. The suspicious device that led to two Baltimore County schools being evacuated Tuesday was an improvised destructive device made of cardboard and included a toy car receiver. That's according to charging documents obtained by the Baltimore Sun. The device was built so it could be set off by remote control, police say. It was found in a vehicle near Pine Grove Middle School. That school and Pine Grove Elementary were evacuated Tuesday. The Baltimore County Council Monday night approved eight people to serve on its newly created Police Accountability Board. While the appointments themselves were not controversial, the board's authority, or lack of it, is being questioned. WIPR's John Lee reports. The Police Accountability Board will receive public complaints about police conduct and recommend policy changes. Critics believe the board will be toothless because it has no investigatory authority. At an earlier public hearing, Cindy Farquhar with the Baltimore County Coalition for Police Accountability lamented that a former police officer can be on the board. We caution that even an appearance of bias will undermine the credibility of the board, which is so necessary for its effectiveness. Board member John Chambers is a retired Baltimore City police officer. So I'm not going to side across the board with the police. If it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Chambers says he's experienced the good and the bad in law enforcement. John Lee, WIPR News. Baltimore County Executive Johnny Olszewski is requesting a review of an assault and arrest in Woodlawn on Monday. Video of the incident is making the rounds on social media, showing a police officer using physical force during an arrest. Olszewski's office says the county will share more information when it's available.
A panel appointed by an arm of the Federal Department of Health and Human Services wants every doctor to screen adults under 65 for anxiety. In February 2021, nearly 40 percent of Marylanders reported feeling anxious or depressed, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. WIPR's health reporter Scott Massioni talks about how we got here and what the new guidance means for the state with Director of Public Policy at the Mental Health Association of Maryland, Dan Martin. We've seen the demand for mental health uh, services and behavioral health services, mental health and substance use services, really skyrocket over the past couple of years. The COVID pandemic exacerbated what was already rising demand for mental health and substance use services and the isolation and anxiety and depression that resulting from the pandemic have, again, really skyrocketed. Could you talk a little bit about what sort of reasoning might be behind this kind of recommendation and what sort of resources will have to go into it? We want to make sure that we are identifying these illnesses early so that we can take steps to prevent and and treat them. What are we seeing in people under 65 in terms of anxiety? What sorts of symptoms come out and how does anxiety affect someone's life? You know, I think people with anxiety have a feeling restless, you know, difficulty concentrating, irritability, sleep problems, things like that. So things that really do uh, impact daily life. If everyone were to be screened, obviously that's a very difficult situation. What sort of consciousness and what a self-awareness would the nation get out of that? Um, you know, what, what sort of treatment options would there be for people and what could they possibly do to help once they find out if they're anxious or if they have anxiety? At the Mental Health Association of Maryland, uh, we encourage screening for anxiety, depression, things like that in the primary care setting. You know, most people with mild to moderate, you know, again, depression, anxiety, that's where they go to get treatment for these things in the primary care settings. Unfortunately, care delivered in these settings is often suboptimal with individuals, you know, not being identified, or if they are identified, they don't receive the care that they need. And so we've actually been pushing this year and we'll be pushing in the, you know, in the, in the new legislature for, um, there are things that we can do to, once those illnesses are recognized, to, once they are screened, to make sure that the, they're getting the proper treatments through kind of consultation with, with mental health professionals, uh, better case management, things like that. And so we really are pushing through the Equal Treatment Maryland campaign in Maryland to increase screening and measurement of kind of outcomes to make sure that people are getting better. You talked about how there's a shortage of mental health professionals right now. What is Maryland experiencing on that front and, and how severe is it? Well, there is a shortage of healthcare professionals across the healthcare space, but uh, yes, but mental health is particularly, the, the issue is particularly profound in the mental health care setting. There have been challenges, workforce challenges for years, uh, and they continue, and that's another thing that we are pushing for through the Equal Treatment Maryland campaign. Community mental health providers recruit and retain staff uh, so that we can make sure that we have the resources to, to treat people that are you know, identified as, as having anxiety or depression. Are there any sorts of people who are more at risk or are less likely to get the sort of screening or help that they need during a mental health crisis or in general just, you know, finding mental health help that they need? Yes, I think there are disparities in, in identification and treatment of mental health issues. I think Black patients are less likely to be treated for mental health conditions than, than white patients. Uh, they're, they're often misdiagnosed. And you know, so there's real disparities across different populations in terms of access to, identification of and access to mental health resources. 
So if someone did want to get screened for anxiety, what might be their, their best place to go for resources within Maryland? If someone's concerned that they may have anxiety, you know, anxiety disorders, their primary care provider should be able to provide them with a, a screen to identify that. And if that is identified, should be able to refer them if they can't you know, help them themselves, should be able to refer them out to a specialist that can help them. And I'd assume there's quite a few options for treating anxiety. Um, you know, would you mind just maybe just going over some quick broad strokes of, of how someone might be able to handle some anxiety uh, that they may have? There are a variety of ways to treat anxiety, therapy, medication, their lifestyle changes that folks can make, um, meditation and mindfulness. I mean, there's an array of options. And, and you know, if someone's struggling with anxiety, their their primary care doctor or, or, or specialist should be able to kind of go over a lot of different uh, options with them uh, and, and find the one that works best for them. We've heard a lot about mental health lately, and it seems like it's on the rise. Is that because people are more aware of mental health or are there serious things happening right now in the world that are causing mental health issues or, or is it a, a combination of both? I think it's really a combination of both. I think, again, coming out of the pandemic and, and you know, just kind of societal challenges writ large, there is a lot of, a lot more stressor, stressors on people, you know, that kind of lead anxiety, depression and things like that. But also I think younger generation is more willing and, and open about talking about these things. I think there's less of a stigma amongst the younger generation, which again, is really helping to kind of shine a light on the need and, and make sure folks know that they're not alone and that, that, that there are options out there to help people. That was WYPR's health reporter, Scott Massioni. Teaching about racism in K-12 public schools has been debated at school board meetings across the country, but most Marylanders don't have a problem with it, according to a recent poll. The Goucher College poll, in partnership with WIPR and the Baltimore Banner, gauged voters' opinions on education issues in the state. WIPR's education reporter, Shekana Collier, with that story. The poll found that 68% of Maryland voters think students should be taught about how racism exists in society. Scott Gear, a Republican in Baltimore County, said that it's necessary for students to learn about race. The history of our state in individual areas must be understood in terms of what was happening among and between the races over the course of our history. If you don't understand that, you don't understand where we are today. Caroline Berry, a Democrat living in Baltimore City, has a similar attitude on the topic. Explaining how racism has shaped not only how we view people, but, you know, the economy and just the institutional aspects of it really can give children a better aspect on how the world is the way it is and why things are the way that they are. 27 percent of poll respondents disagreed and said they are against public schools teaching about race. When asked about parent involvement in K-12 public schools, 69% of voters told pollsters that parents should have a say in curriculum. Yolanda Seabrooks, a parent in Baltimore City, agrees and said that she wants to feel comfortable about what her children are learning in school. She adds that parents should also be willing to become knowledgeable on the subject matter. Because we should have a say, we also have the duty to be well-informed about the issues and about how things are being taught. So I see a lot of knee-jerk reactions to things that are being taught without really understanding what they are. 
Over the course of the pandemic, there has been a rise in parents demanding access to public school curriculums across the country. In Maryland, State Senator Mary Beth Carroza said parents becoming more active in education is a positive result of the pandemic and virtual learning. Earlier this year, she introduced the Curriculum Transparency and Publication Act. Senate Bill 786 is in an effort to take the next step to increase curriculum transparency by requiring each public school to post the curriculum on the school's publicly accessible website. Carosa said the bill's intention was to increase curriculum transparency for parents, taxpayers, and the general public. The bill died in committee. Brian, a Democrat and parent in Montgomery County who asked that his last name not be used because he works in public service, is a part of the 26% of voters that disagree with Carosa. He said parents should not have control over what is taught in school and that curriculum should be left up to the education experts in the state. I think the, the experts uh, should be able to, to, to figure out what is appropriate for children to learn at different stages of their lives. Brian added that there's value to students learning about controversial topics. Some parents might, you know, object to teaching their children about uh, controversial things uh, that have happened throughout history. And, you know, again, as I said, I think it's important for uh, children to have a you know well-rounded perspective. It helps them you know grow uh, as individuals and helps them understand you know the world they live in. The poll found that across party lines, public school and education are priorities for voters this election season. Jakina Collier, WIPR News. Tomorrow is the 29th annual Dining Out for Life fundraiser by the organization Movable Feast. They've been providing home-delivered and medically tailored meals to those living with serious chronic illness, many affected by the ever-growing issue of food insecurity across Maryland. The overall goal is to raise over $50,000 from various fundraising efforts, but perhaps the largest push will come from a number of participating restaurants who will rely on you to eat out tomorrow or order in. I had a chance to chat with the executive director of Movable Feast, Sue Elias. Sue, let's talk about Movable Feast and some of its history and its significance in the, in the community. Movable Feast serves people who live at the intersection of serious illness and food insecurity. So we are making meals right here in our, um, in our production kitchen in East Baltimore. And those meals are medically tailored, meaning that they are specifically designed uh, with the nutrition needed for people with serious illness. And we deliver them right to people's homes in uh, 14 counties and Baltimore City. So we're beyond Baltimore. We're through uh, a great deal of Maryland. Uh, and so we are making sure that people who live at that intersection of serious illness and food insecurity have the nutrition they need to be healthy. Well, you know, that that sounds like quite a feat. And I know you've been at this for, for many years with, uh, with the, the program. Uh, tell us about what does it take to, to keep a program like this running and, and, and uh, all the resources that are needed to, to keep this going year after year? Yeah, so we did start in 1989 in response to people who 
had HIV, the HIV epidemic, and uh, with delivering meals to people who really had no one else to support them. And we have continued this work for over 30 years uh, with the transition as the, the world of, uh, of HIV changed with people living longer to adding on other chronic illnesses that we knew people needed this support uh, where we understand that food is medicine. And so last year, Movable Feast delivered almost a half a million meals to over 2,000 clients throughout Maryland. And that takes uh, a good deal of effort. We have volunteers, so we had to, to shut down the volunteers during the pandemic, but we, we are now back to having 50 to 60 volunteers a week in our kitchen and volunteers to deliver our meals. Uh, it takes a great deal of support, uh, people getting involved in our events, um, and certainly it, it takes the financial resources uh, to be able to uh, to feed people who who rely on us weekly to provide the nutrition that they need. So this brings the question, uh, going back to the, the height of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, how did the organization manage to navigate itself through through all of that? Well, it was a challenge, and it really, we can probably say we never missed a meal delivery during the pandemic. And that is because of the dedication of, uh, first, our staff, who made sure that they were here uh, producing and delivering meals, um, as well as our supporters who provided the financial resources and then returned to volunteering when it was, was safe to do so. Um, we, we had to make adjustments, uh, certainly all of the safety precautions. Uh, uh, we had less people in our kitchen. We had to simplify some of the meals that we created because of the food supply chain issues. But overall, we were able to continue to produce uh, the meals uh, that people needed, those medically tailored meals. Uh, our drivers started doing no-contact delivery. Our, uh, our dietitians who provide individualized nutrition counseling did that through telehealth. So we adapted. Um, we had staff who were working remotely, but then we came back, came back to our uh, office and our facilities in East Baltimore and with masks and uh, social distancing and, um, and vaccines, we were able to safely do the job that we knew we needed to do to serve the, the over 2,000 people that we serve in, in Maryland. And you're coming up on the 29th annual Dining Out for Life event. Uh, let's talk a bit about that event. And you've been doing this for really, really, really a long time. Yes, we have. And that started uh, as well uh, back to the HIV uh, epidemic, where when that started, the concept, very simple, restaurants donate a generous percent of their sales on a given day to local organizations that serve people living with HIV. Uh, and we have been the beneficiary in the Baltimore area since it started, and we've been doing it for 29 years. So this year, it is Thursday, September 22nd. And so it's this, this Thursday, September 22nd. And we are just so glad to be able to invite diners back to restaurants. Um, our, our restaurant partners are so generous that even as they are still 
recovering from the pandemic, they are willing to uh, donate percentage of their sales to movable beast. Um, that generosity, that partnership has lasted a long time. And so we are very excited to invite diners back to our participating restaurants and know that a portion of their bill that night will be donated directly to Movable Feast to serve people at that intersection of chronic illness and food insecurity. So this really is a win-win for for many of the the restaurants that are that are participating, and obviously uh, Movable Feast uh, as well. Uh, talk a little bit about the importance of being able to give those restaurants the needed visibility in in view of what the pandemic did to local businesses, especially uh, the you know the restaurant and service industry, um, it, it 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 is a win win for them. It is, um, and we we are really hoping that anyone who um, you know has even thought about supporting Movable Feast will do it in this way by by picking one of our 39 participating restaurants and going out that night. It could be takeout or dine-in, uh, but, but our restaurant industry has really suffered, and yet they still have responded in, with such generosity to say, yes, of course, we will support you. We know there are people throughout Maryland that are hurting in different ways, and uh, so it's uh, hopefully going to be a very fun night with people uh, picking a restaurant, going out, dining out. Who doesn't want to take a night off from cooking? And knowing that a portion of the sales benefits Movable Feast and people who um, need that life-saving nutrition, that makes it an, an even better night. Can you actually name uh, a few uh, of the restaurants that have been uh, that have supported you over the years and still continue uh, to do so? Um, Gertrude's, uh, the Brewers Art, Blue Pit Barbecue. Um, we have Zeke's Coffee in Pigtown participating this year. So we have a range of new restaurants uh, that are participating, uh, as well as those that have been with us for for many many years. And uh, all of those restaurants are listed on our website, www.mfeast.org, Dining Out for Life. You can sort the list by vegan, vegetarian locations. We have restaurants in Howard County. Um, We have restaurants in Annapolis. We have restaurants in Baltimore County, Hartford County. So you can search by location. If you want to go out with your friends for lunch from work, those that are serving lunch, we have, you can sort uh, and search on our website, get all of that information. And if for any reason you can't participate that day, you can't eat out, there is a way that you can participate by donating. And on that day, starting at 7 a.m. on September 22nd, gifts of any size will be matched. And anyone who makes a direct gift will be entered into a raffle for three fantastic prizes that we have. Who doesn't love a good raffle? <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, so one wonderful on that. Uh, what is your fundraising goal uh, this year? And and talk a bit about um, how successful that has been uh, in in uh, as compared to years past. As you look at the goal and what you need to 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 keep this going. Well, we are hoping to raise over fifty thousand dollars. And of course, you know it is a challenge when our restaurant partners have uh, have experienced. The, what they've experienced over the last couple of years. But we, so this is a 
you know, coming back to this event after two years of having to uh, do it in a completely different way uh, in the past two years. So uh, our goal is to raise uh, over $50,000. We are uh, positive that we're going to be able to do that with a great turnout that evening, um, as well as people being able to donate directly uh, and help to help us reach that goal. We thank Sue Elias, the executive director of Movable Feast, for sharing some time with us here at The Daily Dose. And we'd like to remind you that you can visit their website, mfeast.org, for a complete list of restaurants to choose from. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, John Lee, Scott Massioni, Joel McCord, Kristen Mossbrucker, and Bethany Raja. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. Remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.